This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, we're catching up with two old friends of the show who are making news this week. First, it's that time of year, the annual APAC conference. 14,000 delegates, one Israeli prime minister, lots of chatter about our unbreakable bond with Israel, but no U.S. president. We'll talk with the incomparable Jeffrey Goldberg of Bloomberg View about Bibi's yearly barnstorming trip across America and what President Obama had to say to Bibi on and other matters Middle Eastern in Goldberg's exclusive Oval Office interview. Then, your fellow Americans, it's my old boyhood chum Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent of the New York Times magazine and best-selling author of This Town. He's going uptown making that inevitable transition that only the very top in his profession do, moving from reporter, then to profiler-in-chief, and now columnist, joining the ranks of the Chardonnay sippers who bestow upon us their rarefied opinion. But that's not what Lebo's new column in the Times magazine called Your Fellow Americans hopes to do. His first entry is in the paper tomorrow, but we'll get a first look with Mark at the bottom of the hour. But first... It's Jeffrey Goldberg of Bloomberg View for his second tour of polyoptics. Welcome back, sir, to the program. Thank you. Uh, what are your Purim plans for next week? My Purim plans, I keep those a secret. Thank you very much for, uh, for asking, though. Um, I, uh, what are you doing for Purim? Uh, I don't, I, I'm actually going to be out west in Arizona at uh, a, a, little, a little wedding action. You know the, the most... Um the, the the most appropriate thing to do on Purim would be to bomb Iran, if you think about it. Uh, it sort of that would have the uh, that would have an echo, a nice historical echo, except that no one is bombing Iran anymore, so that will not be happening. Yes, and uh, and the, do the people roof... understand that reference? No, or Jeffrey. Get in trouble? No, give me the reference. Thank you. Uh, Purim is a holiday in which uh, which celebrates the victory of the Jewish people over a Persian uh, uh, vizier who planned their extermination. Um, so in recent years, it has had a kind of weird, historically relevant echo in the confrontation between Iran and Israel, or in the, the statements by Iranian leaders that they want to see Israel be wiped from the map. That was what that was a reference to. Thank you, sir, for enlightening me and and my fellow listeners. And me as a 48-year-old Jew who wouldn't have got that reference, I feel terrible and my parents... Come on, you would have gotten that reference. Um, So, uh, on that very topic, you had the big get interview uh, with President Obama this week. It's interesting, you know, in your interview with President Obama for Bloomberg View and David Remnick's interview with uh, him a few weeks ago based on his travels with him for The New Yorker. He seems very comfortable, Jeffrey Goldberg, in sitting down for the long-form talks with the the real experts in their fields rather than uh, Barbara Walters or the usual White House press corps. You, you referenced in your talk with him the conversation you had in the campaign and then the conversation you had with him uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, so a repeat performance for you. Is he just a comfortable guy in this setting? You know, it's interesting that you ask that because one of the things when you, I mean, one of the challenges of interviewing Obama, and I think this is probably a challenge of uh, interviewing Clinton as well, is that these guys talk. I mean, they, you ask a question and, um, 
you know, if you're a journalist, the, the scariest words you can hear from Obama's mouth are, uh, let me put this in context, or let me step back for a minute. And, you know, you're thinking, no, step forward, go forward. Because, uh, you know, they're going to kick me out of the White House in a few minutes, and I'm not going to get all my questions. But he, he gives um, long complicated, interesting answers that are perfectly formed paragraphs. And, you know, when you promise that, uh, you know, yeah, okay, put, put, put the issue of having people who know a lot about the subject area aside for a minute, although there's probably something to that. But when, you know, when you, you know, when you're talking to the New Yorker, you know, when, for instance, I told them that I would print the whole transcript of the interview. Like, it'll all be out there. I'm not going to cherry pick. Um, he knows that, you know, there's a reasonable chance that people will gain access to the more complicated thoughts that he's having rather than the, you know, um, cable news soundbite sort of thing. So, yeah, I think I think he prefers to do that rather than the sort of, you know, 10 minutes on a superficial topic. He likes to chew these things over. And then he gets the end result he probably wants, too, which is the top editorial in the New York Times on Thursday, which references your interview and, and basically uh, allows his point of view to get to get out there. Um, yeah, I mean, look, look, I, here, here's the thing about uh, the, the president. I mean, this is, a, this is a truism. Anything that comes out of the president's mouth is newsworthy. Right. Uh, I mean, if he if he commented on Washington's cold weather, it would provoke a, um, you know, I was going to say a flurry of commentary, but and I didn't mean I don't want to I don't want to say it or a storm of commentary for that matter. But you get my point. Yeah. He, he so, so anything he says is going to get uh, attention. Uh, you know, that said, they spent a lot of time in the White House figuring out how to get how to get certain messages out at certain times and what is the best way to do it. And, you know, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is they, they also, not, never as much as people in our profession want, but they also do recognize that um, he has to answer questions from people, um, including questions that aren't very pleasant. I mean, I probably spent, from, from his perspective, I probably spent too long too much time, you know, asking, why didn't you do this in Syria? Why didn't right. you do that in Syria? You know, it's not, um, you know, it's not all just message enforcement or message uh, amplification. And I found your particular tactic of bringing up his Nobel Peace Prize Peace Prize speech about uh, intervention now versus intervention later, he seemed to really go off on that and say that, uh, here, let me tell you, Jeffrey, what I was facing yeah. in Syria. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I had just read that the night before, you know, before I go interview him or other people, like, I mean, there's no one at the level of President of the United States in the government, but they're high-ranking officials. I like to go through their speeches. You know, one of the things you, you, you learn, and, and I'm sure you, you understand this, is one of the things you really learn is that you, you, even the informed reader only gets 10 or 15% of what these guys are saying. You know, or, or, you know there's, always, there's always nuggets buried in speeches or in, 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 in appearances that they make. You know, you know, every word the president says is cataloged. There's millions of them. Um, and so I just found the Nobel Peace Prize speech one of the things to, to go back to over and over again. It's an amazing speech. It's a very sophisticated speech. And yeah, I, I said, I, I, basically, I said, you know, you, you said in your Nobel Prize speech, you know, look, there is a there's there is a rationale, a moral rationale for humanitarian, armed humanitarian intervention. Um, and then he went on to say that, you know, one of the consequences of of not intervening is that you you might have to intervene later in a more drastic way because the situation has spun so far out of control. And 
you know, I kind of looked at him and said, well, this sounds like, this sounds like Syria. I mean, this sounds like a situation we're in. And he gave a very, obviously, you can find it on Bloomberg yep. View, but he gave a very, you know, long, complicated answer to right. that, to that uh, question. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you said that you were going to reproduce the transcript in full, and the very fact that he didn't make a quip or reference it, it sounded like you, you hit a bit of a nerve there. Um, but let's, let's go, Jeffrey Goldberg of Bloomberg View, to actually what happened after your <clears throat> Bloomberg view interview with President Obama aired, and that was this annual visit by the uh, Israeli Prime Minister and all of the things that uh, attended. Uh, Let's begin with the meeting in the Oval Office uh, that was presaged by your conversation with President Obama and what happened, uh, what Prime Minister Netanyahu said when he uh, came in the door. Mr. President, first I want to thank uh, you and the First Lady for the gracious hospitality that you've shown me, my wife, and our entire delegation. we have uh, uh, an enduring bond of friendship between our two countries. And I appreciate the uh, opportunity to have this meeting with you after your important speech yesterday. We, uh, we share your hope and your vision for the spread of democracy in the Middle East. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you reaffirmed once again now and in our conversation and in actual deed the commitment to Israel's security. Uh, We value your efforts to advance the peace process. This is something that we want to have accomplished. Israel wants peace. I want peace. What we all want is a peace that will be genuine, that will hold, that will endure. So, Jeffrey Goldberg, a year ago when Prime Minister Netanyahu visited, things weren't all sanguine. Uh, and basically, basically the, the view that President Obama was taking into this, I think, to paraphrase your interview, was, if not now, when? If not you, who? So right. how was the tone of this meeting and, and basically what did President Obama's message get through and is President and Prime Minister Netanyahu hearing it? Oh, you know, it's it's funny you say that, because I think in one way it really got through. One of the things the president said to me was, you know, we, he talked about the benefits of a two-state solution, of, of a peace treaty um, for Israel, and, and that is that all the Arab states around it will recognize, the Muslim world will recognize Israel, and, you know, just won't be isolated in its region. And obviously there's an economic argument there, there's a political argument there. And Netanyahu, in his speech to APAC, which is the day after his visit to Obama um, made that case for the first time, which is interesting because he usually doesn't, when he talks about the two-state solution, he talks about it somewhat grudgingly. Um, You know, he says, this is what we have to do. This is the first time I've heard him make the, make a positive case for it. Like things will be great. Things will be better for us in this in the following area if we actually go do this. So I'm wondering if, you know, the, the president's message has sunk in. There's an interesting thing about this, this meeting. So, you know, so I post the interview, Netanyahu lands, you know, they, some of the things that the president said, you know, obviously, um, caused some level of distress uh, in Netanyahu's delegation. Uh, obviously, by the time he got to the White House, they had all worked out that, um, you know, they were going to get along fine for the cameras and, and they weren't going to poke at each other, at least in public. And remember, everything that I've heard from inside, they had a, uh, you know, productive, not very tense meeting. However, and this is, you know, this is politics at a sophisticated level. However, um, 
Netanyahu now has in the back of his mind that this is the way Obama really thinks about the situation. So Obama has achieved what he wanted to achieve, which is to put the prime minister on a little bit of notice, right? But for public consumption, you know, walked it back a little bit and said, yeah, yeah, we're great. Everything's cool. Don't worry about it. So it, it, it keeps your adversary somewhat destabilized, you know, doubting that he understands fully the game that you're playing with him. Um, I just wish that Obama could do that with, with Putin. <laughs> um, you know, it'd be good. It would be good to play that game at that level. But Putin is a, you know, obviously it's in a different category of leader entirely from a country that's an adversary, not a dependent friend. Jeffrey Goldberg, you know these Middle Eastern leaders very well. Uh, you. I wouldn't pro- go that far. You, but, okay. Well, I mean, you had that fa- fascinating profile of King Abdullah a few months ago, and yeah. uh, you wrote a fascinating piece on the passing of Ariel Sharon uh, <clears throat> a few months ago when he passed. And so, uh, and part of what is between the lines, I think, in what President Obama told you and what you've written is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a, a pivotal transitional leader in, in Israel. He's, his longevity is is unsurpassed uh, recently, and uh, Mahmoud Abbas is a more moderate leader in the Palestinian uh, in Palestine. And this could be the moment, but if this moment doesn't happen, all bets are off about who succeeds Abbas, what Israel will look like, what will happen with the settlements. So, what does Jeffrey Goldberg think about where this end game could actually go? Well. Um I don't think we we end up in a you know final peace deal, um, but I am very impressed with uh, John Kerry's efforts. Um, just even the sort of the Herculean nature of the efforts. Not I'm not even talking about the content, uh, although the content is also pretty smart. I mean, what he's what Kerry decided to do was sort of make a list of everything that, that, that worries Netanyahu and sort of go down one by one and check them off, you know, figure out, okay, how do I neutralize this as a fear? How do I neutralize that as a fear? And, he, and he's doing a good job of that. One of the things the president was doing in the interview that he did with me last week was to also signal to um, the Palestinian leader, um, Mahmoud Abbas, that, um, you know, hey, don't worry, I, we're, we're still putting Israel under some pressure in these negotiations. It's not just about you. Uh, I mean, it's not just about, you know, uh, uh, helping Netanyahu along. We're going to, you know, I, I got some heat on him as well. Um, so I, I think Kerry's doing an interesting job, and uh, it's to be commended. I just don't see it ending in uh, in a, a peace deal because I'm not 100% sure that anyone could have it end in a peace deal. I'm not sure that Rabin could have. I'm not sure that Sharon could. Remember, it's it, the interesting thing about this is that it's, it is a Groundhog Day kind of experience. We've been doing this for 20 years. Everybody knows what the parameters of a deal would be, you know, more or less where the borders would be, more or less the way Jerusalem would be shared, more or less how they deal with the refugee issue and the settlement issue. We, we all know the, 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 the parameters, but... Um, there's a problem of political will and cultural will, and, and there's a problem of religion, and there's all kinds of things that are, that are systemic. We've come very close in the past. Israel, uh, in the year 2000, you know, was ready to, 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 to do more than it's ready today. Yep. And the Palestinian leader at the time, Yasser Arafat, walked out of Camp David, essentially, without, you know, without even sort of offering up a counter vision for, for what it would be. Um, Abbas is more moderate. Netanyahu is very powerful and knows what needs to be done. So some of the stars are aligning.
So let's you mentioned Secretary Kerry. Let's uh, let's hear a little bit of uh, Secretary Kerry with Netanyahu at Villa Taverna in Rome a few months ago and uh, talk about his role. I want to begin by wishing the Prime Minister a very, very happy birthday. His birthday so. was uh, Monday, and yeah. happy to wish you best returns. Getting younger all the time, John. <laughs> I like you. I don't know. I think we're earning some gray hairs together. Um, this is a very important opportunity for us to be able to meet because there are a uh, series of issues that are of huge importance to both of our countries. Uh, and our people are watching closely what is happening with respect to threats uh, in the region uh, and the challenges that we face. Uh, it's particularly timely because we are, as the Prime Minister and people in the world know, engaged in negotiations with Iran uh, regarding Iran's nuclear weapons program. So Jeffrey Goldberg from Rome to Jerusalem to Damascus to Kiev, John Kerry really is earning those gray hairs in this few years that he has as Secretary of State. Yeah, I mean, quite obviously, he's he's very vigorous and he's going for broke on a couple of things. Not this is not a comment on whether it's going to succeed or whether he's doing it the smartest way. But yeah, he's obviously, um, you know, it's it's interesting to to watch a guy who. Uh, unlike, let's say, the previous Secretary of State, uh, this is a person who knows that this is probably his last big job. Yep. Um, so it's just uh, pedal to the metal um, without fear of sort of electoral consequence down the road. I'm not implying that, uh, well, maybe I'm implying it, but I'm not saying it. I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton uh, trimmed what she would otherwise have done because of future issues about uh, political viability, but she was a you know, more cautious Secretary of State in some ways. Uh, turning to another area in the region, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, President Obama has increasingly used Sunnylands in uh, Southern California, the former home of Walter Annenberg, as a place to meet and greet visiting heads of state. He did so uh, earlier with uh, uh, the prime or the Chinese leader, and now most recently with King Abdullah of Jordan. Hear a little bit of that, and then have you bring us up to date with how Abdullah is doing with the many uh, challenges he faces across the Jordan River. I think it's fair to say that uh, we have very few. Uh, friends, partners, and allies uh, around the world that have been uh, as steadfast and reliable uh, as uh, His Majesty uh, King Abdullah, uh, as well as the people of Jordan, uh, in uh, a region that obviously is going through enormous changes. Uh, the friendship between our peoples uh, has been a constant. And uh, most recently, uh, we are now partnering because uh, Jordan just uh, took its seat on the Security Council uh, and is working actively with us on a whole range of international issues. Jeffrey, you painted a, ver a tenuous picture of King Abdullah's uh, control over Jordan in that profile of a few months ago. Where do things stand now? Uh, he's actually in pretty good shape, I think. Uh, he's a very smart guy um, and is trying to manage a lot of competing problems and he's doing a fairly good job one of the things he has this is going to sound odd but one of the things he has as an advantage right now um well there's two the biggest one is that his people you know who might be let's say um moved by the spirit of the now mostly defunct arab spring but moved nonetheless uh look at syria right to their north 
and think, God forbid, you know, or they look at the, they look at Libya, they look at Egypt, they look at all these places, they look at Iraq right to their east, uh, and they think, you know, uh, there's a lot to be said for stability. And that, of course, benefits um, the king who sits atop, uh, you know, a pretty uh, coherent and effective security apparatus. Um, and of course, obviously, the Jordanians see every day the million, you know, the million or so refugees from Syria that they're already in the kingdom, and they know that you know they don't they don't want to they don't want to fate like that. Uh, and the other thing that's working in his favor is that he he he's been blessed in a kind of way with one of the um, least competent Muslim Brotherhood branches in the Arab world. Um, and he's figured out ways to outfox them in pretty good ways. And and also, I think the Jordanian people again looked at Egypt and looked how looked how quickly the Muslim Brotherhood lost so much popular support, and then and then, and then thought to themselves, mm, okay, uh, maybe the Egyptians know something about the Muslim Brotherhood, and so that, of course. Uh, helps the king uh, buttress his position a bit. Um, and then across uh, across the region, too, some, so many weird things happen in the Middle East, Jeffrey, and I count on you uh, both in your uh, writing and your tweets to set me straight. I want to hear this Super Bowl commercial in which Scarlett Johansson appeared for SodaStream mm. and uh, talk a little bit about the the conflict that she faced as both a, a goodwill ambassador and a pitch person for SodaStream. Like most actors, my real job is saving the world. Start with plain water, add bubbles... Mix in the perfect flavor. Look, a soda that's better for you and all of us. Less sugar, less bottles. If only I could make this message go viral. You doing it, Scarlett. Yeah, you doing it. Changing the world one sip at a time. Sorry, Coke and Pepsi. Oh, yeah, she done it. Soda Street. Jeffrey Goldberg, frame up this problem that Scarlett Johansson faced and how she dealt with it. Right. Well, a problem or opportunity. Yeah. Um, SodaStream is an Israeli company. A lot of people are familiar with the product that makes gas <laughs> into what it turns. It makes everything into bubble water. Uh, it's a smart device. I have one. Uh, it wouldn't be controversial except that one of the factories, I think one of the 11 maybe, uh, of the company sits in the West Bank, in the occupied West Bank, inside a Jewish settlement. The one that happens to be close to Jerusalem, close to Israel proper, but still in the West Bank. And so uh, various pro-Palestinian forces objected to her participation and among those forces was uh, Oxfam, the British charity group for which she has been a spokeswoman or a global ambassador or whatever the title is. Uh, and interestingly, given given the sort of the boycott dynamics that, that, that are taking place uh, on the margins of the Israeli economy, Scarlett Johansson decided to drop Oxfam and keep SodaStream. Um, and uh, she's become something of a, a hero in, um, in Israel. A lot of people don't know that she's Jewish, also, by the way. Um, the name does not suggest it. Uh, but uh, she is now 
going back to your first statement about Purim, the hero of Purim is Queen Esther. Many people know that yep. name. Uh, Scarlett Johansson has become a little bit of a Queen Esther figure uh, in pro-Israel circles uh, for for not you know succumbing to that kind of pressure uh, and dropping SodaStream. The issue remains, however, and you know, and, and it's it's always been um, my position that it's better for these Israeli companies to do their work inside the the, the 67 lines inside Israel proper. Um, but uh, there's also a countervailing feeling among a lot of, uh, let's say, centrist-minded Jews um, that uh, you know boycotting Israel is also a kind of egregious thing. And so, uh, and as one more wrinkle, yeah, which is interesting, which is that this factory that everybody's talking it about... employs a lot of Palestinians. Well, not only employs a lot of Palestinians, but, but it's one of the only places in the West Bank or anywhere in Israel where Palestinians and Israelis work together. And by right. working together, I mean side there are side. Palestinian supervisors of Jewish workers. You know, it's not um, it's not just like uh, engineers are Palestinian, managers are Palestinian, and it it's and it's several. You know, I think it's a thousand people or fourteen hundred people. It's kind of like the vision of what you would want things to be. Um, and so there's that, and the other the other piece of it is is that it's in a place where everybody knows. Going back to this discussion we just had about the parameters of what a peace deal would look like, everyone knows that where this factory is is going to be part of Israel when a peace deal, if a peace deal is. Ever made. It will be annexed to Israel. Israel will trade other territory to the Palestinian entity um, in exchange for it. So, uh, one of the benefits of coming to a peace deal and having permanent borders is that everybody knows, you know, where the lines are, and everybody knows, you know, who's sitting on what part, who's sitting on what territory. And and as you noted, I think in an earlier tweet, I mean, look, if this is a, an important I love moment, you carefully read my tweet. Uh, I appreciate it. I mean, uh, if, if this is an important moment for Benjamin Netanyahu, because as you pointed out, uh, there are uh, 18 Israelis on the Forbes billionaires list. I mean, it, the Israeli economy has never been in a better position. No, it's very and, strong. And an opportunity to bring the whole region up if they can just get this deal done. Right. I mean, Netanyahu, after he came to APEC, which was like in the White House, which is what he had to do, flew right out to California to Silicon Valley, um, where he signed an MOU with the governor, Jerry Brown, liberal governor. Not a great day for those forces arguing for a boycott of Israel, obviously. I can only say good things about public officials who are uh, serving for the third term uh, and seeking a fourth term. Uh, but the reason you're in the third term and seeking a fourth term is because you're not just sitting there. You're trying and effectively are doing things to better the lives of uh, your constituencies. And we have an opportunity to do that in a big way. Our uh, two able ambassadors uh, spoke about it, spoke about the possibility of our partnerships, which are truly limitless. They're limited only by our imagination. But he went to Silicon Valley because Israel has become, in a way, an extension of Silicon Valley. Um, you, you, you have in, the largest private employer in Israel is Intel. I mean, people don't know that. It's a very interesting thing. Um, and it's not just that they're making chips there. They're designing chips. Um, Israel has become somewhat indispensable to companies like Intel, Cisco, Apple, Facebook, and so on. Google is there in a big way um, because of its... Uh, it's high tech power, and and so Netanyahu. I mean, it, it really is interesting. Washington is the seat of traditional power, so he had to visit that. But he really had to go to San Francisco. He really had to go out to Silicon Valley and Stanford to sort of um, reinforce 
that developing relationship, which has really helped fuel uh, a very, very strong Israeli economy. So as we finish up uh, with just our one-on-one, Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, the last time you were on the show was not talking at all hardly about the Middle East. It was talking about this other article that I was captivated by, your your long uh, profile of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and his uh, fascination with and uh, idolization of Bruce Springsteen and whether it was unrequited love. And there had been some real warming in that relationship uh, since the article had come out, I think think. And then the bridge closing scandal came. And then uh, came this appearance by the boss on Jimmy Fallon. Governor, let me in. I want to be your friend. There'll be no partisan divisions. Let me wrap my legs around your mighty rims and relieve your stressful condition. You got Wall Street master stuck cheek to cheek with blue collar truckers and Oh, Jeffrey, what happened? Painful, huh? That must have been really painful. Well, you know, um, the good thing about that is that Springsteen's still paying attention to him, right? <laughs> Just to put the best possible spin yeah. on it. I don't, I don't track the, uh, I currently don't track the ups and downs of that relationship. I have enough, you know, enough enough to worry about, you know, watching developments in the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, but um, one has to assume that, uh, the, you know, Springsteen was never a fan, as you know. That was the point of that article I wrote. Um, after uh, Sandy uh, he re- and, and Christie's performance during Sandy, uh, Springsteen really warmed up to him, and they, you know, had a kind of... I don't know what they had, but they had something. Um, and and now I, I guess it's sort of gone back to the mean, reverted to the mean. And, um, you know, it has to be just a very painful, <laughs> painful thing for Chris Christie. But I think what's probably more painful is the fact that people are not talking about him as, as a semi-inevitable Republican presidential candidate. That's probably much more painful than, than losing the quasi-friendship of Bruce Springsteen. Yes, unfortunately... Uh Chris Christie has a traffic jam of his of his own to try and get through to get back into the good graces of both the uh, not only the uh, far right of the Republican Party but even the moderates. Um, tough going for him. Right. Uh, hang tight, Jeffrey. We're going to get our old pal Mark Leibovich on the line. Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. You're always an incredible guy to talk to and bring us up to date on what's going on Thanks. in some of the tensest regions of the world. Thanks very much. POTUS. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. Welcome back to Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS. I'm Josh King. As promised at the beginning of the show, we have now with us uh, the chief national correspondent of the New York Times Magazine, the best-selling author of this town, and my bi- boyhood chum, Mark Leibovich. Lebo, welcome back to the program. Josh, good to be here. Chum, boyhood, uh, adult, all of this. Um, 
let's uh, let's first play a little game, Lebo. Uh, Hi, Howard. Are you listening? Yeah, they'll be listening, uh, right, and good. and there will be a section at the end of the segment for our hometown news. There of always course, is. Of course, I've drummed some stuff up to, for us mm-hmm. to talk about. But first, let's do a little uh, a little game show thing. Um, this is going to be a little bit of uh, voices from your life. So I'm going to have someone come on the line, Lebo, who you have not exchanged an email with in over four hours. You're going to hear this voice, have a conversation, and see if you can guess the identity of this person. So, so my question is, what, what does a chief Washington correspondent do, a chief as opposed to like a deputy chief correspondent? I always wondered what that job entailed. Like, is he in charge of ordering office supplies or something? <laughs> is it Jeff? It could be. Is it, is it, is it, is it Jake, Jeff? Or no, it's Jeff. Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Are we on together? Yeah. No, no, I was on for the first half hour, and then they said Lebo's coming on, and they said, oh, I'll stay. This is our first joint polyoptic through. It's sort of like, um, it's kind of like Joe Biden and and Amy Poehler or Peter (laughs) Schneider or something like that. It's history-making, you know, when, like, like, the Eagles get together. It's, like, history-making. So, actually, are we going to be named together in Playbook on the the now endless um, weekend listing, you know, programming that they do in in the Friday Playbook? It's the only reason I'm doing this. So, Lebo, for a half hour, I had to pretend and talk about very serious things about the Middle East with Jeffrey, but now we can just chill back and relax, and I can take a break and let you guys just gab. I'll also just you know leave if Mark is uncomfortable having me here on the radio. I know he likes his time. No, actually, I, I'm happy that you enhance. Well, you know, I actually can take this opportunity. I wish I were a childhood friend of Mark Leibovich's. That would have been fun. You know what, it was Josh, the greatest honor Josh of my life. the first among equals. But I will say this. I, I think that this will be a good opportunity to plug my personal um, you know, pet issue now, which is getting the soon-to-be-built Bethesda International Airport uh, <laughs> named Jeffrey Goldberg International Airport. <laughs> With direct flights to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv Everybody seven times a, a day. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you have to go through Philly, but no, no, it's good. It's perfect. I want to just know where in Bethesda this airport is going to be, because Bethesda's crowded. You I know, know what? I actually think yeah, they're, going to, they're going to put a landing strip. You know, that's the... That northern, that part of Connecticut Avenue that goes up to Einstein's. at Einstein's or Bethesda <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be right outside the Einstein's Bagel, so yes. people can get their exactly. get their bagels right before they get it, on the direct Bethesda exactly. Tel Aviv flight. Yeah. It, it, it'll be a perfectly. It would be a life changing experience for Ed Markey. <laughs> <laughs> so, so gentlemen, uh, gentlemen of the press. Oh, Josh, you're still there. I, I'm Sorry. still here, boys. Yeah. Uh, this this morning or yesterday offered us a perfect this town moment. One one very. Uh, applicable to Lebo. Uh, I want to hear a little bit of the uh, the contentious hearing between uh, Chairman Daryl Issa and his ranking member, Elijah Cummings. And maybe this is a, a time when Issa is going to reassert his dominance over Congress. May I ask my question? May you, I state my statement? You're, you're all free to leave. We've adjourned, but the gentleman may ask his question. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, I have one procedural question, and it goes to trying to help you get the information, by the way, that you just asked. What is your question? Let, I'm, I'm going, no, let me say what I have to say. I've listened to you for the last 15 or 20 minutes. Let me say what I have to say. Sharon, I have one procedural Ms. question. Ms. Lerner, you're, you're, you're released. You may. But first, I would like to use my time to make some brief points. For the past year, the central Republican accusation in this investigation... We're adjourned. Close it down. Uh, Lebo, in, in the old days, would, would ISA have even allowed Cummings to get those words there? I would say this. Jeff, you'll appreciate this. Yes. Um, you know, Elijah 
gets more more of a say at the Passover table <laughs> than Elijah ah. Cummings got at uh, the the hearing yesterday. Mark, you don't understand. This show is a Purim-themed show. <laughs> oh, is it? We had you're, a lot of Purim at the top of the show. You're the wrong Jewish holiday. Oh, my but God. But, yeah, we get the point. We get the point. I'm sorry. Is today, are we? Are, I'm sorry. All right. Um, you're good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I thought it was. Um, yeah, it was great theater. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it'll sway a lot of votes. And um, Daryl, I'm sure committee, it's back huh? on the way back up to New Hampshire as we speak. That is a smoothly functioning committee. That was really awesome. Uh, that was pretty amazing. Huh? Lebo, as opposed to the fake outrage that you write about in uh, your fellow Americans this week, I would characterize that as real outrage by Representative Cummings. Yeah, it sounded like it. I mean, look, I mean, he, what they, I guess none of the Democrats got to say anything. I mean, that's a little bit hard to defend. But look, um, it's a contentious committee. Um, IRS, obviously, a highly charged issue. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to let the people of Kentucky decide. Well, let's turn to Kentucky uh, <laughs> because um, Kentucky is obviously a main battleground this year. And uh, before we get to the dueling uh, sound bites of the of the 23 and 26 year old uh, mm-hmm. press secretaries, yeah. let's talk. Let's hear a little bit from the big dog who came in on behalf of uh, of uh, Ms. Grimes. In the end, that's really what Allison's telling you. Send me to Washington. I'll do something that makes sense. And if there's a problem with it, I'll fix it. And the other choice is to just pout if you're not in the White House, if your party's not in the White House, and make as many problems as you can, stop anything good from happening, and if you can't stop it, at least badmouth it. And then when life being what it is and all of us being imperfect as we are, when there's a problem, do everything you can to make sure the problem is never fixed. So, Lebo, uh, Charlie Norton must have had a field day with President Clinton in town. Uh, yeah, yeah. She actually, it's 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 a she. Um, by the way, Kelsey and Charlie, who are the two protagonists of the column, both kind of have either boys or androgynous names, <laughs> but they are both young women, very nice young women. Um, yeah, no. I mean, look, Bill Clinton is, uh, I, I assume, um, a net plus even in Kentucky. Did Bill Clinton win Kentucky? Was that was that like a Clinton state? I'm pretty sure he did in '92. I'm not sure, and yeah. probably '96. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, were, can, uh, I can Google that, guys. While can you, you Google that? Uh, yeah, I, no, I'm going to do that. I did the Gore visit to Fancy Farm, Kentucky. Fancy Farm, the, the, the horribly named Fancy Farm, the, yeah, really. the great Fancy Farm barbecue, some of the best barbecue in the South. Oh, so it's it actually it's a place. It's not yeah. a town or something like that. Um, no, I mean, I, I think, look, it's a good race. Um, I, I mean, I guess McConnell looks like he'll probably get past the... Um, the Clinton won, by the way, 92, 44 to 41%. Did he really? Yeah, so he, he still George never H. Got... W. Bush got uh, only 41% of the vote. Ross Perot got 13, 13 That, and that 13% did it for us, sir. Uh, yeah. Wait, so can I ask you, so in the completely improvisational and conversational spirit of this, since I haven't heard the first half of this... Um, Wow, that's like an hour with POTUS, Jeff. That's pretty good. Like, has he done an hour with like any wait any non- serious POTUS or POTUS POTUS? No, 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 POTUS. I'm sorry. POTUS. Well, he did an hour with POTUS Obama, and now an hour with uh, with Sirius POTUS, POTUS, POTUS King. I mean, that's King, like King POTUS for a non Remnick, um, you know, interview. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty good. I what do you mean, so, so it falls high on the Remnick scale. This gets me to almost Charlie Rose level, doesn't it? It, it totally, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, this is the first time since you've been back around the table. <laughs> 
<laughs> did you talk about Remnick? Uh, we did. You know, we I touched actually, on Remnick. I actually, uh, you know, only one of the two people I'm on radio with has read the entire transcript, and it ain't you, Lebo. That's pretty clear. No, it has, I've not read the entire. I, no, no, no. I wouldn't expect you to. I would. You, 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 you've read about it. I have what, read about what it. What is the Washington expression? I've read in it. No, uh, no. I thought, oh, we got an hour. <laughs> I don't need. To yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, just, no, I did. I did invoke something that the president uh, said to Remnick, uh, and I, I did uh, ask him a question about that. Syria, right? Kind of left hanging. Well, uh, yeah, in, in sort of general Sunni Shia. Mm-hmm. You know, well, we've moved from Kentucky to Sunni Shia in like under 60 seconds. <laughs> no, but we're going to right, we're go right back to Kentucky by way of Nazi oh. Germany because I want to... Uh, <laughs> All right, then. No, no flights there. I, I, I want to play the, the offending Frankfurt? piece of video from, uh, from Kentucky speaker Stumbo mm. that was uh, seized upon by the McConnell camp. And I have to speak to the crowd that when we kicked off this campaign back in July in Lexington. And it reminded me of the feeling that our troops must have had when they liberated the European nations following World War II. Can you imagine what it felt like to know that you were liberating a country? Well, you're about to liberate your state. You're about to liberate your state from the worst reign of misabuse that we've seen in the last 30 years. You're about to give us hope. So, Mark Leibovich, you debut this week. Your fellow Americans in the New York Times Magazine headline, Fake Outrage in the Kentucky Senate Race, and your lead sentence, Kentucky may be home to the country's most closely watched Senate race, but it's no place for loose talk about Nazis. I didn't hear a lot about Nazis in what Stumbo just said. No, no, no. I mean, look, there's obviously... Um you have to be careful. He was comparing. He was comparing the situation to the Nazis. So you're playing right into their hands, though. No, he was comparing it to. Hey, you're right. I mean, look, this is a state senator, state rep, who probably shouldn't be talking so carelessly about this in a political setting at all. But the point of the lead of the story is that the Grimes campaign led by Charlie Norton, I mean, I'm sorry, led, the, um, the McConnell campaign led by Kelsey Cooper, who was the communications director of the state party in Kentucky, the Republican Party, made a huge deal about it. They were demanding apologies. They were going, they were demanding that Ann Grimes denounce this, distancing herself. And it was a classic trope in which uh, the outrage meter was off the charts and they were putting the other person on the defensive. And of course, there was no, um, you know, no apology was in the offing. And this is sort of the game these days. I mean, you have these kids going from state to state. I mean, when I say kids, I mean people in their 20s, very little experience, whose job it is essentially to just stoke outrage where really no one would really be feeling outrage if they didn't bring it up to begin with. And yet you both guys are, are dealing every day with these uh, young communications directors, not like the, the seasoned operatives who would take up residence in Iowa or New Hampshire on a presidential campaign and know every reporter and, and drink with them and have meals with them and have great long conversations with them <laughs> off the record. That's not what you're getting from these two uh, uh, spokespeople, are you? Yeah, in fairness, in fairness, you don't get a lot of that in New Hampshire and Iowa these days <laughs> either. I mean, I think, you know, the days where Frank Menkowitz and, um, you know, Mike McCurry were were sort of sidling up to the bar with people they've known for years or are long gone. But, I mean, look, it's a very different social media-fied environment, and it rewards people who can put out 8 million tweets a day and who can, you know, seize on something that could potentially be... Um, 
you know, break through the, the cacophony of everything, and, and that's what these, you know, younger operatives are doing these days. But, I mean, I, I also think it's worth saying, I, I don't quite know why anyone in politics continues to even get near imagery, you know, that can be compared to Nazism or slavery or 9-11 or any number of things that, that are such clearly, you know, going to be seized upon as an outrage possibility. Um, can, but, I, uh, can I just make a counterintuitive point? Please. At this, at this point? Well, you're, hey, you're not the host of the show. i got to get permission from the host. <laughs> please go ahead, Jeffrey. Oh, thank you very much. Um, no, no, no. I wrote a column a few weeks ago making making the I, it just struck me that there's something there's something good and useful about bringing up the holocaust <laughs> imagery and nazi imagery which is that it means that those things you know the the, the holocaust or slavery for 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 that matter mm-hmm. are so egregious that they they come they rise right to the top of people's minds as the most terrible things that ever happened in human history. Right. So when as they, they maintain such power uh, that people reach for them automatically to describe something they think is terrible. Now, of course, you're right. They shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be flip about it. You know? But on the other hand, it shows that like, people understand the, the, the horror of the Holocaust and slavery. I'm a columnist. I have to come up with things I was like going to say, you know, man. You know, so wait, so I had to write something, right? Hillary what comparing uh, Putin's action in uh, Crimea uh, to you know to Hitler uh, appropriate or not uh, no, because you know here's the problem. The problem with the comparison, when made by a national political leader, is mm-hmm. if and George W. George H. W. Bush did this with Saddam and, and Kuwait. People do this all the right. time. Right. You, you know the problem is if it's Hitler, then you have to go kill him. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, right. Like, like if this is a Hitler-like act, then you have to do everything in your power, including use nuclear bombs right. to stop it. So don't mm-hmm. box yourself in. I mean, obviously you don't really mean it because yeah. you're not actually going to take the steps that one would take to defeat Hitler. Yeah. So also, you know, Hillary to leave it alone. is not in politics anymore. She's a stateswoman. She's, yes. You know, she's a private citizen. <laughs> exactly. She's free to speak as she wants. Uh, Mark, um, Mark day, I want to be described as a stateswoman. <laughs> as Jeffrey Goldberg appropriately points out, he is a bona fide and certified columnist, a role that he has uh, enjoyed now for, for several years. You are taking this giant step into the unknown to... To join the ranks of the columnists, mm. what uh, what precipitated this decision, and and what's what are we going to see in future weeks from your fellow Americans? Well, I mean, I do think that it's 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 proof that they will give anyone a column these days. Um, no, I mean, we have these this space in the front of the magazine um, where we want to have more of a regular political presence, and I'm down here and. Uh, every other week, we're going to be focusing on something not necessarily political, but usually something having to do with, with media or politics or Washington or government. Um, we'll do a lot of campaign stuff. And um, I've never been a columnist before, except since, I guess, high school when uh, when we went to high school together. So uh, this will be new, and it'll be exciting, and hopefully it'll be different. But in, the, uh, in all the publicity and, and the public presence you've had after the publication of this town i mean your views have become have come more to the fore than you ever allowed in your in your work as a sort of mainline reporter at the mercury news and the washington post and and then as profiler in chief at the new york times so are you getting comfortable with offering an opinion more than you have in the past um yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's become easier over the years. I mean, the writing a book has been sort of helpful in sort of clarifying the, the stronger voice and sort of what my perspective is. And um, and frankly, you know, my editors both here and at the Post have been pretty indulgent of 
of pieces that have had pretty strong voices and, and points of view, and, and hopefully one day I'll be noticed enough to um, get into Bloomberg View. I yeah. want to... Yeah, well, we're, we're, you know, you have, there's an application process. Oh, I understand. I yeah, you've got to submit your clips. <laughs> <laughs> and Shipley will decide. And we need, like, a triplicate. But, okay, I can do this. Triplicate, one to you, one to my lawyer, one to... <laughs> right. <laughs> one right. to Josh. One to Barb Barnett. Yeah. Uh, we got, there's, a, there's a lot of people you've got to get these clips to. Always Bob. Bob will, Bob will get the first batch. Right, right, right. We like them all printed out and then put in an envelope. But in triplicate. The key is triplicate. Triplicate, triplicate, triplicate. <laughs> Yeah, we're not, we're not doing our own Xeroxing there at Bloomberg View. I, I think there is a scandal that, that you, a brewing scandal that I think you both can address. <clears throat> and, and that is, uh, regards the second season of House of Cards. And I want to play a little oh, yeah. clip from, uh, yeah, well, from, from right. early on in this show. Yeah. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I'm about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. One heartbeat away from the presidency, not a single vote cast in my name. Democracy is so overrated. Democracy is so overrated. But what about uh, transparency, Lebo? You did a Times Talks with Kevin Spacey, Robert, Robin Wright, and Bo Willimon, and I couldn't find that video after I saw it publicized. Oh, really? Oh, it's, I could probably send it to you. Um, yeah, no, with the Times, uh, we do these Times Talk things where they'll like have reporters do like videos or actually live events with um, people who are deemed interesting in entertainment or news or whatever and so they had me go up to Baltimore to interview them on the set and uh, I wonder why I can't find it actually you know it's one of those things that you can find on JetBlue like all over the place <laughs> like it was like my dad was flying on JetBlue and like he kept like watching me over and over and over again quit the, the volume wasn't so yeah anyway uh, yeah I did hey, is JetBlue going to land at Bethesda International by you the know, way it's really up to you <laughs> do they have a, the Goldberg they, International I, yeah well look I wasn't going to say it but you know I'm so not going to refer to it by my own name Jeffrey Goldberg International there you because, go we, well should we talk about what we were emailing about earlier probably not <laughs> no probably not I can't remember what it was but I'm sure not Jeffrey no. are you watching uh, the second season you know what? Can I just say, just to be contrary again, uh, I can't stand that show. I'm sorry. I don't want to watch it. I I I I, I don't get what. First of all, I don't want to when I watch when I watch something. I want it to be something that I don't know about or you know see hints of. And I just don't. Find, I don't know. Maybe Mark has a different opinion, but I I just I'm not a big fan of Washington dramas. Tell you the truth. Yeah. Not since they took West Wing off the air. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I would, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to take a different view. How's this? Um, Go ahead. <laughs> no, I think it's fun. I, I've actually, I watched the first season. I've watched about four or five episodes of the second season. I've heard, uh, the second season have been criticized quite a bit um, for unrealisticness or alleged unrealisticness. Um, it, it does seem to be heading into some pretty strange directions. Um, although I'm also kind of sick of everyone, every smarty pants in Washington saying, oh, well, they would never get an education bill passed in one episode, so they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, You're not calling me a smarty pants, are you? No, I'm not. I'm calling oh, okay. you a, a precious punum. Um, <laughs> that's that's the, my name. <laughs> the, no, but I think, though, the... Um, I mean, it is fiction. It's, it's, you know, goofy stuff happens. I think it's... I, I like Kevin Spacey. I like Robin Wright. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hanging on. Um, it, there are some pre-shark jumping possibilities that I would be concerned about, but... Did you see the episode with the uh, Civil War reenactors? Uh, that was, you know, I just saw that last last night, in fact. I, I, I get credit, Lebo, don't you think, for originating the game Confederate and Union in, in our city block? Very much so, although it got very belligerent. 
I, know. I mean, you know, Newton Mass wasn't exactly a big Civil War like hotbed. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like I mean, Leesburg, maybe, Virginia. I mean, yeah, I mean, Civil War. I mean, maybe there was like the rivalry between the China Sales Restaurant in Chestnut Hill and South Pacific and Four Corners, but um, no, there wasn't. There wasn't really a lot of civil unrest in early. I don't know. I, I don't consider it a big Civil War, you know, battle battleground. But maybe I'm wrong. Except for our neighborhood. Well, there was always the uh, the Daniel Chester French sculpture of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, Chamberlain or no, of, uh, what's his name, the guy Matthew Broderick played in Glory outside the Mass State House. But speaking yeah. of the Mass State House, Lebo... And we were. I, I want to uh, turn turn to local news, and Goldberg can stick around for this too, but, <laughs> but here's a piece from News Center 5 about our governor. He's been asked countless times, but tonight in Washington, Governor Patrick opened the door. Asked whether he could see himself a national candidate, he replied, maybe, maybe. Democratic strategist Marianne Marsh. Deval Patrick said what everyone else has been thinking all along, that he's not finished with politics when he's finished being governor of Massachusetts, and that's not a surprise. The governor was interviewed by Politico at the National Governors Association Conference Sunday, adding, quote, that's a decision I have to make along with my wife of 30 years, and she's a tough one to convince. Let's just see what time tells. Well, Mark Leibovich, after Mike Dukakis, Paul Songus, John Kerry, Mitt Romney, Deval Patrick is finally going to figure out the secret sauce to following Jack Kennedy to the White House? Yeah, I mean, it won't actually feel like an election unless there is a governor of Massachusetts um, ultimately losing the election in the <laughs> end. No, I mean, I, yeah, look, I mean, first of all, I have not lived in Massachusetts for over 20 years, um, but there is, I mean, speculation is free. I, I do worry that, that speculation about Deval Patrick's future would, would distract from the real issue here, which is what Scott Brown is going to run for, <laughs> uh, because there, you know, there are any number of things he might run for, and, and God knows, I mean, as Marianne Marsh says, it's something, if everyone has been thinking about Deval Patrick's future all the time, I know personally I speak, I think about, like, you know, what Scott Brown's going to do all the time. Now, I don't know, look, speculation's free, it's an off year, um, so actually it's not, it's a midterm year. Um, so this is what people do. Uh, last bit uh, on local news, and, and Goldberg's always welcome to chime in, too. Uh, down in, I have nothing uh, to say about Massachusetts, by the way, really. Well, let, let, let's bring the action down to Florida, Lebo, because... Uh, <laughs> you have plenty to say I got plenty Florida. to say about Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, here's uh, Red Sox manager John Farrell on the recent workouts of Clay Buckholt. Everything that he dealt with from a physical standpoint last year, uh, he addressed in the offseason. Shoulder strength is very good. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to another productive year from Clay. I think he's settled into a very good routine again this spring so far. And given the challenges that he's had to face, uh, he, he's getting getting more aware of what his body's needs are and, and really how to maintain the durability. Mark Leibovich, uh, Jeff Goldberg, what are your thoughts of the oncoming baseball season? Jeff? They're going all the way this time. <laughs> I just, or they're either going to break 500. You're a I Nationals can, guy, right? Uh, I am now. You know, my son is a huge Nationals guy, so you just sort of uh, adopt the coloration of your your children's uh, interests. But you're Mets by birth, right? I'm a Mets by by birth, right? By birth. Ed Cranepool. I got Ed Cranepool's uh, autograph when I was in third grade. Did you really? Lebo was still, a big Rusty Staub fan. I, I, I still, Rusty Staub. It's still the greatest thing that ever happened to me was uh, was shaking Ed Cranepool's hand. That's um. Wait, well, who is um? Art Shamsky was uh, David Brooks's uh, entry in the Jewish Jocks anthology. Yeah, Art Shamsky. There were there were some great players on the Mets. Seventy three. Oh my God, what a team! Art Shamsky but, was sixty nine though. But, but uh, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. But uh, was he still around? No, he was gone by seventy three. I don't know. 
But uh, David uh, Brooks, I'm telling you, everyone buy Jewish jocks. We are all contributors. Uh, yeah, um, that's a good book. We're all Ukrainians. We're all contributors. <laughs> that's a good book. We uh, stand with Crimea in that we book. We stand with Crimea. By yeah. the way, I remember in high school it was Crimea. Remember Crimea? The Crimean War? Yeah, I mean, it was that's, that's Mr. Alfred talked to us about the Crimean War. It, so it says so either, do I have the pronunciation wrong, or did Mr. Blyvis have the pronunciation wrong, or has everyone got it wrong? I don't know. <laughs> uh, have you been to Crimea, John? Or, or, uh, uh, no, but I've been to Crimea. You've been to Crimea? Um, no, 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 I've never been there. Have you? Never Crimea been River. Nope, never have been. <laughs> have you been to Moscow or like Russia? You know, Crimea River, by the way, is going to be the new cruise control. You know, you <laughs> notice how every profile of Ted oh, Cruz, yeah. cruise control, and everybody thinks they're the first one to think of it. Crimea River, exactly. you know, it, exactly. it's coming. And it's like it's, when Lucille Ball died, like 90% of the obituary said, we all love Lucy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Anyway. Um, anyway, everybody's thinking in tweets. Everybody is thinking in tweets. Hey, Jeff, I, I sat at our seat at uh, Open City the other day. We should reprise that. Yeah, 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 and we should have Josh come along. Yeah, I'd we love should. To do that. Yeah, we can get a table for four or three. We can take this off air. Well, this has been an extraordinary, unprecedented polyoptics. A full Wait, hour. Is it, is it historic? With Jeffrey, a full hour with Jeffrey Goldberg and an amazing appearance by uh, the columnist for the New York Times Magazine of your fellow Americans, Mark Leibovich, the chief national correspondent chief. Who's, who's not the deputy chief, but the chief. No, no, chief. He's chief. Exactly. I've got, I have some photocopying I have to go do now. He has his own armed forces, by the way. People don't know that. Yes, He's the commander-in-chief of his own Navy. Very nice. Mark, yeah. Jeffrey, happy Purim. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you, you, Josh. Thank you, Bye. Josh. Thanks Bye. a lot, guys. Take All care. Right. Bye. Bye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on Pulse.